are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Podcast fam, what is up? Colin here with my number one dog. What up, Mike? <laughs> Mike D's in the house. <laughs> Michael D's in the house. Hey, we just wanted to tell you guys that we have a new texting service, right? If you want to get notified when these episodes go out, all you have to do is text WOGNV, that's W H O A G N V, to 484848. Do that and you will get notified every time a new episode goes out. It'll text it right to your phone so you can be the first to listen in. I'm subscribing right now. You doing it right yeah, now? Yeah, I do it. I you wanted to see it? what it said. All right. 484848 is the number. Text W-H-O-A-G-N-V. We will see you later. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the WHOA GNV podcast. The podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nailed it. My name is Colin Austin, and I want to introduce to you my co-host, the might, what is this? The mightiful, <laughs> memorable, miraculous, man on a mission, Michael Dees. What is up, Mike? When you trip over the words, it's like I you know. don't mean it. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, dude. I'm really sorry. I was like really amped to hear that. I didn't read it this time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even, we're just going to go on to our, <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and move on. Just Today. pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> Today on the show, we have James DiVirgilio is the co-founder of Chacon Diaz and DiVirgilio Wealth Management and is one of the country's leading fiduciary investors and financial planners. You got it. That's fine. Uh, I mean, it was close. I, but I wanted to continue because I wrote in here. And he's the host of the Gator Nation football podcast. That's the important part. James, what's up, man? What's up? I'm so hey, happy to be here. Thanks for being here, man. I'm, I'm excited. So I've known James for a long time. What we met when what when you're doing like the entrepreneurial yeah, lunch the group, right? Lunch, yeah. God, we need to bring that back. We do. That I was, keep saying that it needs to happen. Yeah, that was pretty fire. Because we would what like once a month we yeah. just kind of say, hey, like if you're an entrepreneur in Gainesville, come out to lunch. We're gonna be here, and and it was cool. We had a, a nice little group that we get together once a month and just have lunch together. And that's yeah. probably where I met you the first time, right? Yeah, we did. And a lot of those people have launched some pretty cool, you know, businesses since then. Yeah. We're going to get it back. It's going to come back. Yeah. It's going to happen. I'm super excited. This episode is going out September 2nd. So, how many football games have we played? Still only one. <laughs> still we only had one, one okay. in my week. Okay, okay. Uh, so, so, we still beat Miami by three touchdowns. And then we took off and basked in the glory for a little bit. And yeah. now we're getting ready for what, UT Martin, I think. all right well listen like you've seen our format we want we always like to go back a little bit and do a you know how you got to this moment you know your story a little bit but but i we're gonna have to touch on some gator football stuff because one i mean mike hasn't missed a home game since 2003 he's been to every single one he is die hard And yeah, and I know that your podcast is killing it and I'm super, and I've had so many people actually, no kidding, I've had a lot of people say, dude, you need to get James on your podcast because his podcast is so incredible and it's just a little bit, I don't know, people tell me it's like a little bit more in depth, a little bit, you know, just a little bit 
outside the norm. And so I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about it. But but man, just give us give us your story before I ask you all these crazy questions. <laughs> just give me just <laughs> yeah, a nice give me, blanket yeah, question. Me, yeah, I like just this. Just give me your story, man. You know, when I came on this podcast, give me your story. it says like, in the, little, here? the packet, Colin, it says, hey, don't worry, just show up. They'll ask you questions. They'll direct you through stuff. And the first question you ask me is, just give me your story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the beginning. What's your story? It all begins once upon a time. Dude, um, it's funny because we've had some people like throw it way back. Yeah. And they're like, well, so when I was a you kid. know, <laughs> they're like, yeah, so how, you know, how much of the story do you want? I'm like, well, if we're 45 minutes in and you're only at age three, I'll let you know that yeah, <laughs> we need seriously. to speed it up. <laughs> no. Three lemonade stands that failed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll give you the Cliff Notes story for sure. So okay, I went cool. to, I went to school here at UF for undergrad and grad school. And like most what college years? kids, I had 2000, 2004, and okay. then grad school to 05. All right, so you and me were here at the same time. Yeah, same time, really. You know, the Ron Zook era, after Ooh. the Steve Spurrier era. Ooh, is right, yeah. <laughs> I remember out of that era, probably most prominently, when, when Ron Zook and uh, the football team got in the fight. Keg, with, the keg party. Yeah, the keg party yeah. fight, uh, which, was, which is amazing, honestly. Like, nowadays, that would have been huge news with social media, but back sure. then, it kind of got buried. But can you imagine that you have a football coach throwing a keg at frat guys happened here on this campus and no one really knew about it but it was it was an amazing situation but we remember yeah we remember so that happened um after grad school i went to work for uh for a wall street bank for a while really did not like that wound up getting fired from that wall street bank for something that was rather absurd i gave the wrong password to somebody one day so on my screen i've got these two screens in front of me and uh, it's supposed to refresh it doesn't so the pop the password it gives me is for some other person that person calls in later, and then essentially, uh, you know, they, they call me in and they fire me. But the real reason was I was like an elitist who thought I was too good for that position, and I had rubbed some people the wrong way in, in management. I was kind of a maverick, and so they took that opportunity to get rid of me, uh, which uh, I changed my life for the better. I spent the next year really figuring out what I believed in life, what was real, what wasn't real, what I was going to base the rest of my life on, because my own plan hadn't worked. And uh, I think that that changed my life for a good direction. So then that same company, same bank, rehired me out of nowhere a year later, which was really interesting. And I'll never forget it, I go into this big office in Jacksonville, and uh, a guy that was the brother of the guy who fired me, who's way high up in this Wall Street bank, he takes my file and he shreds it in front of me and says, hey, that was ridiculous, they fired you, doesn't matter, now we're gonna hire you back to a bigger position, which is really extraordinary. <laughs> Wait, how does this stuff happen? Because for the previous year, I was cleaning golf clubs at Ponte Vedra Inn Club. I had a master's degree. I'm cleaning golf clubs. Very humbling. I can't get a job. I'm applying to all the places I had offers from out of grad school. And they're all like, yeah, we're in the off cycle. You got to wait a year. You know, all this kind of weird things going on. And they contact me and they bring me back in. And so it's truly like, for me, it's truly a God story. Like it's obviously not a me story. I didn't do anything to get it. Were they disappointed they didn't get the Maverick back? Yeah, I think the Maverick was, the Maverick's always here. It's never, <laughs> never totally leaves. You learn to tone down the Maverick. It's, uh, I guess it's kind of like like Tom Cruise and Top Gun. You learn how to like channel when to be the Maverick and when to be like, I need to not be this guy. Uh, so I went to work for them and then the market crashes and they're gonna lay off the training program. So we were in like this middle ground program, so they're gonna lay us off. So it's me and another guy that they had brought on. And at this point in time, I'm just like, you know, whatever, God's got me here for a reason, I'm gonna follow this path. And uh, wound up studying a lot about uh, fiduciary firms. That word is a funny word, and back then it was funny to me too. And I was like, what is this fiduciary financial management? What does that mean? And, and I was very drawn to doing what's best for others. I always have been. It's why I wanted to get into investing in the first place. And I found out that there was, a, there was a part of the investment world that existed that way. And the part I was in certainly was not that way. And uh, I learned all I could about it. And then when I was done with my workday, I'd go to the UF Law Library 
and I would study for my GMAT. I really wanted to go to Stanford. That was my plan. I wanted to get my MBA from Stanford and then go be a consultant. Uh, and so as, as time would happen, as God would lead, I actually wound up starting a firm instead. So my co-founder, Guillermo Diaz, he's my best friend's brother-in-law, he comes to me and says, hey, you've been studying a lot about these fiduciary firms, what do you think about starting one? That's really how it started, and I said, hey, I think I could do it, I know everything there is to know about them. I spent a year researching them. I have no capital. He's like, I got the capital, let's just talk about it. And so it seemed like this really far-fetched idea that culminates with me calling my dad. My dad was way high up in a large company, calling him and saying, here's the idea, I'm thinking about doing this as opposed to getting my MBA, dad, what do you think? And I fully expect him to be like, that's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> and there's a good 10 seconds of silence on the phone, and I hear my dad say, you should do it, start the firm, you should do that. And I remember being, just being totally broadsided, thinking, wow, what, really? Hold on, did you say I should do this? He's like, yeah, that's a great idea, you should do it. And, uh, and, and we did, we started the firm in February of 2009, which was just as the market crash was starting to somewhat maybe come back a little bit. And now we're, now we're 10 years old. And have, you, have you talked to your dad about that moment? All the time. Like, being like, why did you actually tell me to do it? All the time, yeah, and he, he just, he, I mean, he liked it, he liked the idea. And okay. my, dad, my dad really strongly disliked Cause I, yeah, I just I just feel like normal like most parents are gonna say yeah. no. You're like, well, he, he no. told me not to take the job with the company I did in the beginning. That's a, that's don't don't take that job. That's had, not, had not he been pushing you to get the MBA at Stanford? No, that was all me. My okay. dad was all about independence, which is why he was a good person to ask those questions to. Because he was a good counselor as a father. He was all about doing what was you know what was in my interest. He was not like you should do this or you should do that. It was always whatever you want to do. And uh, that was a good piece of counsel. So that helped to encourage me to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for this because someone that I trusted was saying it's actually a good idea. I thought it was a cool idea, but what, what do I really know? I have accomplished nothing. I've been fired, cleaned golf clubs, rehired, laid off. Like, what am I doing? I'm three years into my career. Nothing went the way I thought it would. And, uh, and so we launched a firm with no assets, which is pretty crazy. Nobody really does that with an investment management firm. We did it. And then now here we are. And so we've, we've had a lot of uh, you know, success from, from a, a financial standpoint as far as how large the firm is, what we've accomplished. We've been recognized uh, by quite a few places. In this past year, I've gotten the chance to spend quite a bit of time on TV and the radio talking about uh, fiduciary finance, doing what's best for people. And that's really my passion, is making sure that people get access to, to ways to, to get information that's best for them. And it's unfortunate that in my industry, it's very difficult to find places to get what's best for you. Most people are selling you something, and sales can be totally fine in the right medium. But if you want a consultant, I think if they have a big conflict of interest or they want to do something else that's not in your interest, that's a problem. And worst of all, in my industry, in the finance industry, people actually masquerade around as your guardian, as your friend, as the person that's gonna take care of you. But then behind your back, so to speak, they're doing things that don't take care of you. And that's very confusing because most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of like on this, this crusade for people to understand the differences between who they're using for their financial management because it makes a huge difference. And I'll give you one last financial piece and you can fire questions at me, but how you choose to invest your money and do your financial planning should make you more money than what you make in your career. So let's say Colin makes $20 million, right, over the next course of his career. He should make 40 to 50 to 60 million using financial planning and investment management. So it's that important, yet most people very, very lightly select who they're gonna do it with, right? It's their friend, their cousin, a family member, doesn't matter what their credentials are. And so they get a suboptimal result. It's very weird. To me, it should be one of the most important decisions you make when it comes to selecting a professional, but people do the opposite. 
That's a lot to wrap around. <laughs> right, there you go. There's the Cliff Notes version. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing for me, like right away, is I hear you say like, uh, you know, it's almost like you're in an area of a business where you have to constantly convince your clients that you're not out to get them because of the experiences that they've had otherwise. And uh, is that true? That is true. Okay. Because yes. I feel like we have to do that a lot in the scooter world. Like people come in, and I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. People come in and they already have this used car salesman mindset. Like you're, you're out to get them, you're out to sand, sell them a can. And we've never run our business that way. It's always just like, you know, what's the best tool to help you? But people have that perception when they come in. And so we're constantly fighting against people's bad experiences. And I think that that's, that's interesting. Like I compare them that way. Um, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's busy making sure the boxing gym doesn't ruin our podcast right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, well, let me, I'll, let me just take this a little towards like, I guess to, like, I've been reading this, the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad recently, right? And I think that like has changed my perspective on so much. Like you re- you've read that book? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I would assume, but I don't. <laughs> I, don't I mean, it's 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 crazy to me because I just think the you know the lessons that you learn that I've learned in that book. I mean, even from you know the you know the poor and the middle class work for their money, but the rich have their money work for them. I mean, it seems it seems so basic, and it's kind of like no duh. But then why can't we? <laughs> why can't we do that? You know what I mean? Like what? Like what's the what's the trouble? Like how hard is it to actually, you know? And and I mean, I, I it makes sense, right? So we get we get a raise, or you know, uh, a team member gets a raise, and they're like li- lifestyle changes, yeah. right? They want to spend it, like oh, a new car, upgrade of a house, instead of instead of like taking the money and investing it into assets that will then later generate the cash flow to buy those things and it's the di- really just the dis- discipline and waiting until that that time right oh, that's exactly what it is it's a human behavior problem and your present self almost always wins over your future self until you really discipline your present self and that's the problem right colin from 10 years from now is, is looking at colin now saying man i really hope he does these things yeah but colin now is looking at colin 10 years from now and being screw that guy i don't want anything to go right for that guy i want everything for myself and that person almost always wins out, right? And, and I think most people are used to this with like the night version of yourself and the morning version of yourself. And the night version is like, you're waking up at five in the morning, you're gonna go to the gym and you're gonna crush it. And the morning person hears an alarm go off and says, I am not Screw doing that. any of that. And I think that's the key, like in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, to build the habits that get you to do the things that will get you to a financial successful future are difficult. And I think the best way, I'm looking at your goal board right now, Right, you're great at this. The best way to accomplish anything is to start with one goal and break it down and just start doing it. So the first one is like save 10% of your gross income for retirement. That's financial planning step one, just do it. That's what's got to be done as soon as you start making an income. That's step one, start doing that. And then you can move on to, to future ones. But I think the second part that's hard, Colin, is like figuring out how to invest your money, what assets to invest it in is a whole other language. Right. And most people don't have time for it. And when we don't understand something, we actually try to take shortcuts to get the answer. That's human nature. We say, okay, I don't know this at all. It's way too complicated. I'm gonna take the shortest route to get an answer. Very backwards of what we should do, but that's what we do as humans. So there's so many behavioral components we're fighting against to be successful. 
And this is true being an entrepreneur as well. The same thing you know, haunts us as entrepreneurs. Like, can we do what's best for five, six, seven years from now versus what's best for right now? Are we chasing revenue now or are we building a sustainable business for the future? And those two things are always at odds with each other. Yeah. So how do you, how do you do it then? <laughs> I mean, just, just simply breaking it down into this, that, like that, having that long-term goal and then breaking it all the way down to today? Well, I think, I think the key answer to your question is how do you do it is you shouldn't do it yourself. That's why I spend so much time on TV trying to tell people who to do it with. It's too complicated to do yourself. You know, I, I think the smartest people in life are great leaders and they're also great followers. And to be a great follower, like my Maverick example, you have to trust someone else entirely. And a true maverick doesn't really trust anyone. That's yeah. not a good place to be. I need to be able to offload everything to you and say, Colin, I wanna buy a scooter, it's my budget, what's the best one? And if you say this is the best one to get, I should just stop right there and do it. No more thinking, offload to you. But I need to find somebody I can trust in order to have that kind of offloading with in order for you and your life to take on all the proper financial planning and investment management skills you would need, it's impossible. You can't do it, it cannot be done. So you'd be wise to invest some time up front to figure out who could do it for you. So that's the real answer. I'm not a big proponent of do-it-yourself financial planning or investment management. It's too important to, to treat in a way that you could read a couple of books and solve the problems because you can't. It's just too deep of a field. But I think the key is to understand it's important. That's step one. It's really important. You're not magically going to get to where you wanna to get to uh, without having a plan to get there. And again, that's your board, right? And since I've known you, you've always had these plans. I'm gonna get here by doing this. And I think it starts with saying, I'm going to get here by hiring these kind of people in the financial world that have these designations that are my fiduciary. And that is step one to getting there. And everybody can afford that regardless of where you're at, You know, whether it's a buy the hour agreement or something else, uh, there's a way to get that done. Okay, so why? do people who make a lot of money, I mean, let's just, I mean, hey, you host a football podcast, <laughs> right? You host a football podcast. A lot of these athletes are gonna go on and to the NFL, they're gonna make more money than most of us see in a lifetime in a, in a year. <laughs> you know, millions and millions of dollars, yet they go bankrupt. Like, there's multiple problems with this, right? One, there's, obviously not enough education and how to manage money like that um, on you know a on like a college level i mean they don't they don't teach investing in college like i never took a class that taught taught me how to invest any of my money right so um there's that and and all these and all these players are going not all of them but like a lot of professional athletes go bankrupt, right? So what is it that they need to be doing? Like, like I guess just why? Yeah. Well, 70, just, 70 plus percent of, of professional athletes go bankrupt. How much? 70. 70, 70 plus. percent. 80% yeah. of lottery winners go bankrupt. So again, it's a human nature problem. Uh, and it is an education problem, but it's actually really human nature. Because they're just going out and blowing it? They're spending it? Well, you not come, investing it? To, you come from nothing and you get everything. And you, you don't know how to handle it. But primarily, it's who you trust. They trust the wrong people. Sports agents uh, are, should never be trusted with financial advice, yet most players will trust them with financial advice. They wind up opening very risky investments that feel safe to them, like restaurants. Restaurants are horrible businesses to, to invest your money in. 
at a large scale or even a small scale. And they put a lot of money into that kind of stuff. And, and mainly they have an entourage. They have cousins, brothers, uncles, nephews that come and take all the money they have. Uh, but, but the main answer to your question is they don't have boundaries for athletes. They don't have boundaries. They don't know how to say no. And when I, I do a lot of work at UF with the athletes that are going pro, and one of the main things you tell them is how to say no to your agent, how to say no to your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad. Because the only way that anybody gets wealthy is to start saying no, and then eventually you can say yes. And at our firm, when we started it, we really wanted to have like a, a large pro bono practice. That was important to us. We wanted to be able to offer services for people that didn't have enough money to get services. But when you're sitting in the room figuring out how to do that, what's the answer? The answer is, well, we have to make money first before we can really help anybody. And this is not a novel idea. You know, any large company has had this same situation, you know, kind of be answered. And, and I love the story of, of the guy who started Tom's. He started it as a nonprofit, wasn't getting anywhere, couldn't really help people. And then one of his friends is like, well, have you thought about just trying to do a for-profit business and then giving away money instead that way? That's a good idea, let's do it. And he did it, and obviously he's given away way more than he ever could imagine. Bill Gates will do way more for charitable causes than anyone in human history ever has. For-profit business, right? So I think we have to think about these things, and if you're an athlete and you're going pro, you've gotta think about yourself as a for-profit business, and if you wanna remain wealthy, you can't be saying yes to everyone and sending your dollars all over the place, but that is a huge culture hurdle to overcome. And a lot of these guys, like we said, they come from a legacy and generations of families that have never had money. So there's not a single person in their life that knows how to handle money. And that's why Rich Dad Poor Dad is actually the book I recommend people read. It's very accessible. It's the first book that teaches you what you just mentioned. There is a line of how somebody who handles their money well thinks versus how someone doesn't. And it's not about your race or your gender or how old you are, it's how you think. It's how you think about the resources you have. And you do have to re-educate yourself. And unfortunately, Colin, colleges don't teach this. Uh, it's something we talk a lot about with UF and the administrators, but it's such a big bureaucracy. Uh, in any college you're in, engineering, med medical school, whatever else, the number one most requested course from students is financial planning because everybody's gotta do it and yet it's not taught. Now, if you do go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, there are classes on those things, so they're getting it there. But here at Florida, most of their schools, you go through and you, you don't get an education in something that's going to make a big difference in your life. Does it take money to make money? Of course. How can you make money from nothing? You can't make money from a rock. It takes money to make money, but that's a slow process. I think if we look at your story, right, if I flip this around and I become podcast host today with you, you didn't start by having this awesome facility and building I'm sitting in right now with all these fancy microphones and these great television cameras, right? I feel like I'm on TV. It feels very similar, actually. It's great. It's a great credit to James that I have a moving camera I'm looking at right now. Uh, you know, it's, but you didn't start this way. This wasn't how it was. And if we get into your story, it wasn't like a linear rocket ship to success. That's not the way that it was. It's never that way. But people want it to be that way. And so I think you start by putting that one step forward. I have an idea. I'm going to try this. Um, and I know that's how your story went. And then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. But we have to kind of climb the mountain one step at a time. And I think that we try to climb mountains in like one leap. And then when we fail, we're like, well, I'm not doing that again. And then before you know it, you know, you've 10 years have gone by and you've accomplished nothing. So I think you have to continue to just take those small steps into things you want to achieve. Losing weight, gaining muscle, whatever it is you want to do, that does not happen overnight. But it's hard. Those habits are hard. And we live in an instant gratification society that wants everything now. And that yeah. leads us to a lot of bad habits and bad results. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to the shortcuts. Because everybody's like, ah, oh, need it now, need it now, need it now. Amazon Prime doesn't help. <laughs> no, I, I love Amazon Prime. I am a. <laughs> That's like we're gonna fan. be we're gonna be ordering things and it's gonna be showing up an hour later. You're right. I mean, it's just 
it's reality. It's what's gonna happen. That's amazing. Um, so, I mean, we're in a very entrepreneurial environment, which has shifted a lot since we graduated. I mean, if you're 0405, like Gainesville has changed so much. I mean, I tell everybody when I started this business in 2004, like did it on my own. Like I don't remember getting help from anybody and it was figuring out the pieces. And now, now there's, you know, Gainesville has been great because there's all sorts of incubators, accelerators. I mean, we're a, a, a hub for startups, um, you know, and, and a lot of these companies, which is fantastic, are starting to see some success. Now, obviously we know the importance of failure in entrepreneurship and there's plenty of failures in, in the community as well. But, you know, I see a lot more 30, you know, 30 year olds starting to have some pretty decent success. So hypothetically, let's say I profit $1 million in my pocket today. How would you advise me to invest that money? Well, first, let me let me give a shout out to Gainesville because what's happened here in the past decade is is remarkable. It's crazy, right? Yeah, I'm not from Gainesville. You're not from Gainesville either. No. So both of us are kind of the new Gainesville person. We're not an ACR. We went to school here, maybe, and then stayed or didn't stay. I left, came back. But it's been amazing to see what exists here now. The culture, the vibe. I think in 2005, if you would have told people you wanted to stay in Gainesville, they'd look at you like you were insane. I know, kind of felt that way. And today, <laughs> most of our interns at the firm or when I lecture at UF, most of the students are like, I'd love to stay in Gainesville. And that is an incredible culture shift in a very short period of time. The resources, the growth, all that stuff you mentioned is here, which is amazing. And if you happen to get that million dollars you know, profit, let's, let's assume, Let's assume that and I'm not even talking business profit. Like I want to take your this personal as like, money. Yeah, as like that's I what I'm just your I, I made a out. smart investment. Exactly. Exactly. I crushed it. I'm make. I'm pulling a million dollars out. What, let's how, let's, what let's I try to make it? it as simple as possible because we're going to assume that your financial planning is good, that your debt level is right, that you haven't got a bunch of weird assets on the books. You don't have five hundred thousand dollars of student loans. We're going to assume that everything's in line, and now you have a million dollars. How should you invest yep. it? Yep. Right? Give that, half of it to Mike. Yeah, that's that's the first thing you do is give half the money. Poor investment. No, <laughs> I'm, <just kidding. laughs> I'm so sorry. Man, I just oh, kidding. he knows that's man. a joke. Slayed. He knows. He knows. He knows that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> the emotional and physical abuse all yeah, in one. Right. <laughs> How much can one man take? Um, you know, the answer to that question, I'm, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you what I think are like the four best ways to do it as simply as possible because it's complicated to answer investment questions because it's like, what does that mean? But the four strategies that we know work really well using data and academic science: one, invest in an all stock portfolio using like an exchange traded fund. So let's call this the Warren Buffett method. Now you're going to put 100% of your money in the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 is just 500 stocks that represent most of the US stock market. And you can get one of these for very cheap from about any financial company. And you'd invest in that and you'd put that million there and you'd leave it there forever. That's, that's option one. That's not the option I'd pick. Uh, the reason is you're gonna have entire decades in the US stock market where you don't make anything. And every so often, maybe 10, 20 years, you're gonna have like a, like a minus 50% year, which is gonna crush you emotionally. So that will work. You'll get about 10% a year that way. However, there's, there's some downfalls. In the 50s, uh, we discovered that owning stocks and bonds together was actually a really good idea. So if you have a portfolio that's 60% stocks, so let's say you go 60% US stock market and then 40% bonds, which you could get an ETF, an exchange traded fund, like the AGG, you could type that in, AGG. 
and do that. Set it and forget it. And you'd get the same return you'd get on the all stock portfolio, but you'd get half the risk. Which means now when you go down, you're going down only like 25%, which is good for you emotionally. You have more positive years and you make about the same amount of money. Very amazing discovery, won a Nobel Prize. I still wouldn't do that. Then you go to the third one, which is how a lot of large college endowment funds manage their money. Florida does this, Harvard does this, Stanford does this. Uh, You have multiple assets. So you'll own real estate, not residential real estate, by the way, commercial real estate. Uh, And you can own this through, again, exchange traded funds. And you'll own things like commodities, like natural resources and oil. And then you'll own stocks and bonds. So you'll have four. So you go from all stock portfolio, stock bond portfolio, stock bond, real estate, commodity portfolio. And then lastly- Well, why not residential real estate though? Oh, that's a good topic. Yeah, residential. We can circle back. Resi- yeah, circle back. Right, we'll circle pause back. on that for a second because that's one of my favorite topics to talk about. But <laughs> okay. but definitely not residential real estate. And we'll talk about <laughs> what I what I mean by that because there is a way you can invest in residential real estate that, that's perfectly fine. Okay, so number four. Number four is is the most recent one, uh, and it's, it's something called dual momentum. And I'm not going to unpack this today, but it's very simple. It's based on everything we just learned there, combined with human behavior. And the real problem with those three previous strategies, although they all work and they work better, option three is better than option one, right? Uh, human behavior is really what causes these, these bubbles in the stock market, right? It's what causes the highs to be really high and the lows to be lower than they should be. And we've known this for a long time. It's not a new idea, it's an old idea. The concept of momentum in investing is very simple. It means what's done well in the past year is more likely to do well in the next year. And the only reason that's true is because people tend to herd together. We tend to wanna to be a part of the pack. And there's a lot of fun things when I lecture that I talk about that comes to our own behaviors, but I'll give you this simple example. It's a very, very famous study. Uh, but if you can imagine three lines on your paper, a short one, a middle length one, and a long one, and then a line over here that's definitely as long as the middle one, like for sure. And we send everyone in this room out and we keep Mike in here and we say, okay, Everyone out there, I tell you guys, when you come back in, I'm gonna show these lines up here, and I want you all to emphatically raise your hand that the short line is equal to this mid-length line, which is clearly wrong, right? But Mike does not know this. So Mike sees all your hands go up, and Mike's gonna think, maybe they know something I don't. Mm. I know that line's definitely the same length, but they have to know something, or I'm just an idiot, or I don't wanna be on myself. So there's a seven in 10 shot that he will also raise his hand, knowing he's wrong, to agree with all of you. He would. And then no. <laughs> I'm actually thinking like, no, nah, I'm the three. Like, nah, and that's why wrong. Mike's a bad investment yeah. because he will follow the but, but in reality, there's, there's a lot of these things this that work, pick a, on Mike yeah, that no, work no, against us. He but told me I was going to be excited for this episode because we're going to talk Gator football. Downer, right? yeah. It's and coming. Now, and now we, Gator football's yeah, coming. Yeah, Don't worry. And we went total financial. Total finance. No, we're going, we're going Gator football. But, but it's a lemming effect. And you see this all throughout life. And there's a million components that get you to do this. So it's really important in your investment strategy to account for the fact that people are going to cause a lot of these, these run up or these rundowns. So you can take those three strategies that exist and you can tweak them by adding what I'll call like a human behavior filter, which is called momentum. And it's beyond the scope of this podcast to get into how that works. It's not like rocket science to talk about it, but it kind of gets lost when you're talking about it in the air. But the answer to your question is then any one of those four would work. Four would be the best, three would be the second best, you know, kind of in reverse order as far as how much money you would make and how much risk you would take. More money, less risk. Then you get to stocks, pretty good amount of risk, pretty good amount of money, which is why it's the least desirable. Unfortunately, most people love to invest in individual stocks. That is the worst thing you can do. Mathematically, that would give you the worst expected outcome in the future. 
it's unlikely you're going to pick a lot of good stocks. Uh, you're typically going to pick more losers than you do winners. And you're going to wind up making a lot less money down the road than you should. But why do people do this? It's like the gambling effect. It's like people go to Vegas and gamble because they want to be the one person that pulls a slot machine at the right time. Well, everybody wants to be the person that bought Google in the mid 90s or Apple, you know, in 1992. You want to be that person because that person does exist and you think you're going to be them next. But the odds are very, very small that you're going to be them. And so on average, the, the average investor, this is a disgusting stat, makes just a shade under 4% per year in return. When you account for inflation, they're barely making any money at all. And that's a real stat that's been done every single year for 60 years. Investors don't make money. So they're putting their money into these things and they don't make money. And it's a very serious problem. Uh, it's something that, uh, that, that you should take seriously when you're investing because a lot of people also are, are wrong about what their performance is, which is true in life as well, right? Mm -hmm. We make up all sorts of great things about how good we are. We tell our friends about the one stock we picked that's really great and not the 10 that we lost a lot of money on. Uh, but in reality, investing is complicated, it's important. Um, and that's why I think it's, it's, it's really crucial that you get it done correctly because that million dollars is either gonna go to become 20 or 30 million, right? or it's gonna still be around a million 30 years from now. And that's, so that's a big difference. you're putting it in option four? Oh yeah, that's what I do. So all at the of firm, all, of, all we do at the firm is do option four for all of our clients. We basically, we're like a hedge fund. We manage one pool of money and splice it out, right? So each client, you come in and you come in, and then you know all of you are in the same portfolio. And we can scale the risk down depending on where you are but it's all the same. And we do that because as a fiduciary, we have to do what's best for you. And if the data says that's what's best for you, then we're doing it. And we don't take a, a lesser option. Okay. So residential real estate. So residential real estate, all right. Like why is it a bad investment? So we're gonna talk about one thing first. So we're not talking about Gainesville, this is a love, beloved strategy, right? We're not talking about buying homes and renting them out because that is a good strategy. Now, why is that a good strategy, Colin? Let's put this on you for a second. Why would, oh, buy, why would that be <laughs> Hold an investment? On, buddy. This is you one can have me question. come on your here podcast and talk football. <laughs> you, you're, gonna, you're gonna get this, I love it, because you have commercial real estate. So residential real estate, let's assume you just buy a house and live in it. Yeah. That's a terrible investment, yeah. we're gonna cover why. Which is, but why would it be okay to buy it and rent it? That's the question, what's the difference? Because it's a true asset when it's when it's putting money in your pocket. Because it's, yeah, it's generating income. Right. That's the key, right? You're actually generating income this way. Now, I don't think that's the greatest way to make money. I think it takes a lot of time, there's a lot of cash flow issues, but definitely, if you wanna buy homes and rent them out, that is a viable investment strategy. Now, the home you live in, being the best asset you have is a complete lie. Yep. So, right now, if you go to any, any school anywhere and talk to a real estate professor, but predominantly let's go to the best ones, right? Let's go to again, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, let's go to London School of Economics and say, okay, to the real estate professor, is owning a home that I live in a good investment? They will all unequivocally tell you no. Yet in America, eight out of 10 Americans think their residential home they live in is the best investment they have. And that's because they look, I mean, look, they're going, oh, I'm paying a thousand bucks a month in rent to this complex over here. This is like I'm spending like this is what I'm doing. Why not put this $1000 into a home that I own? That's what they look at, right? right. They don't look at all the other factors. And so I've done a comprehensive study on this. Uh, it's on my website cddwealth.com and you can check it out, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the simple bottom line. On average homes lose about 11% per year when you factor in all the costs. If you have a mortgage, they lose 11% per year. 11%, just let that number soak into your mind, 11% per year. If instead you were to rent, and for every dollar that Colin the homeowner throws into his home, right, Mike throws that into the market and invests, Mike will lose a lot less money than you. 
both strategies lose money. Renting or buying a home are gonna cost you money. Now, but you're thinking, wait, 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 wait. I have a friend or I myself bought a home and sold it for way more than it was. I killed it, right? Uh, that may be true, but then what people do is they buy a bigger house, right? So they stay in the real estate market. And the simple way to think of the real estate market is like this. We know from the past 110 years that the batting average of the real estate market is let's just call it like 200, right? And right now it's batting 600. And if you can't think of a reason why the real estate market is, is, is batting way above its historical average, if something hasn't changed, if there's not a supply demand reason, then it's coming back down to 200, right? It's just hot for a certain reason. Unlike the stock market, which is always batting at a higher average over time, it's always increasing its average. It's not a career 200 hitter, right? That's what's going on with the real estate market. So right now is a terrible time to buy a house because you have prices back at an all-time high, yet there's nothing to justify the reason why those prices are there because again, homes depreciate over time. They need fixing, they get worse, they get less desirable. They're not a good investment. Yet, what gives a home value? The land does. The only reason anyone's home goes up is because the land itself becomes more desirable. Right now, all of a sudden, you got beachfront property. You bought in Gainesville in the duck pond 20 years ago, and now the duck pond's more desirable, so on and so forth. But the home that's on the land is not valuable. It's the land itself that gives it value. Um, and so we could talk about this you know, all day, but what's really important is your home is not a good investment. The home you live in will not make you money. And if you factor in all your costs, you're almost certainly going to lose more money than you would if you actually rented a home and invested every dollar you would have put into the home you would have bought. And you would say invest that into option four. Into a dual momentum portfolio, yeah, there you go. That's the way to become the most wealthy. Now life's a sliding scale. There's reasons to own homes, of course, right? But you should look at a home more like a car. It's not as bad as a car, but it's like a car, it's a use asset. It's something you're going to live in, you're going to use, it should not make you money. And therefore, the smaller your home is, and the more money you have to employ in things that will make you money, the better off it will be. So I'll give you like two good rules for life. One, only employ your money in things that will make you more money, right. which is not a home. Two, don't borrow money to pay for things that don't make you money. So most people go get a loan to buy a home, maybe put 20% down, let's say, probably less, right? So the bank owns their home, really but they're borrowing money to buy an asset that loses them money, which is the double whammy, right? Compounding or this, this idea of a snowball effect is working against you. And that's not what you want. I like it, there's like a very serious <laughs> tone in this room right now, all right, this is good. Let's talk football. Think about, <laughs> think about borrowing all the money it's I- It's like hanging, there's a cloud in here hanging, I mean, people are like, thinking, I like it, there's good- All the money I borrowed to get a degree I'm not using. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I'm thinking about. So at what point should you start investing? I mean, I hear a lot of people say that like, I mean, me, all my friends have are saddled with student loan debt. You pay that off first before you start investing. Do you do you take a small percentage of what you make and and start investing now, even though you're saddled with this debt? Like, what do you what do you advise? Yeah, because so many people have debt. Yeah, that's coming a out of school. Great question. That's I think a great you question. do both at the same time, and this is tough a tough pill to swallow. So let's 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 unwind it for for a second here to those that are maybe still in school. Or, or going to grad school, right? The rule of thumb is you wanna borrow money at a level that your first year's income will be. So if I'm, go, if I'm gonna go back to school and I'm gonna borrow 100 grand to go to Stanford, right, and get my MBA, I need to make more than 100 grand coming out my first year in school. That's kind of the rule of thumb because that means I can pay off that student loan debt pretty quickly. 
So what happens when you go to school and you, you pay 150 grand in student loan debt and then you become a teacher making 30 or 40 grand, how do you, how do you possibly handle that? Mm-hmm. The answer is you don't, you're in trouble. So that's step one. Don't over borrow for what you're gonna wind up doing. Step two is once you've done that, you really need to be doing both. So one, you wanna save 10% of your gross income for your future retirement. You wanna invest that money, right? Like we talked about option four. And then two, you wanna pay into your student loan debt. So I like this 30% idea, which is a lot for sure. That's tough to do. People say, what are you crazy? That's tough to do. Well, you have to do it. It's the only way to get yourself into a good financial situation. You save 10% for retirement, 20% goes to your student loan debt. And in that situation, you're able to pay off your student loan debt in less than 10 years. You're also building for your future. So you have compounding working both for you and against you. The problem with just paying off your student loan debt and not also investing is that you're gonna miss out on some, some you know, wealth generation for maybe seven, eight, nine, 10 years that you're not gonna catch back up to. So mathematically doing both at the same time actually generates a larger number for you later. That's the key. Now, uh, most people nowadays are not gonna have interest rates at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12% on student loan debt. They're like six or seven, seven and a half, right? Those are high. So step one is try to refinance your student loans privately to a lower rate. Because six or 7% is a high interest rate. And step two is pay off your student loans because you cannot get rid of those unless you die. If you go bankrupt, your student loans, they're not gone. So they're super important to pay back. Plus debt has this heavy emotional burden on us that we feel. So you do wanna pay it all off, but you don't wanna pay it all off while not at the same time investing for your retirement because that, even though you'll pay off all your debts, you'll be you know, maybe eight, nine, 10 years behind which you could have grown here. So do them both at the same time. That's really the best way to do it. And if you can afford 10% and 10%, do that. But the reality is in this country, and this is what frustrates me probably the most, if you make 40 or $45,000 in America, you probably feel pretty poor, but you're in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And if you look at your purchasing power here in the United States, you're still in the top 10% of the world. People will say, well, wait a minute, the US is expensive. Not, not really, not relatively speaking. So it's not impossible to do that, especially if you're a single person, it's not impossible at all. But we feel that way because we all wanna have everything now, like we talked about earlier, right? But you can certainly make a $40,000 budget work by saving 10 or 12 grand a year. You know, eight grand goes to your student loan debt, four grand goes to your, your investing. You can do that, it can be done. Get a roommate, you know, buy a scooter, don't drive a car, right? You can make these things happen, uh, but it does take some sacrifice. And you know the thing that, I found fascinating when I was reading the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. I mean, you know, it talks about, especially from an employer standpoint, right? Like team members are gonna want more money. <laughs> you know, and you like, and, and, I, and I think this is probably a good lesson for a lot of our listeners out there is, I think we as leaders need to start doing more to teach them about how to take the money that they have and make it work for them. Because the problem is you end up, oh, but I've, I've been with the company for X amount of years, I deserve, I deserve another $10,000 a year in my salary. Okay, maybe you do, but what happens is that the lifestyle just changes. They go buy a, a, the fancier car, they buy the bigger house, and, and then they're coming back and wanting, just wanting more, even, even more later, right? Like, and, and I'm all about like making sure that people should obviously be be paid for what they do, right? And be paid fairly. And like I'm not I'm not saying anything against that, but what I'm saying is like I just see so many people who overspend or go for go further in debt 
just because of a little boost in salary. And I don't know, like, what can we do to get more employers? I mean, maybe everybody just needs to read that book to start. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I want to, I know that I want to, I mean, we even talked the other day, I was like, man, maybe we just need to start having more, like, team meetings and start teaching this stuff to our team because I just want them to be financially responsible and not go buy uh, a Beamer to impress their friends just because they're making a little bit of extra money. Yeah, I think you hit on two good things there. One is that regardless of your wealth level, it's foolish to think that you won't spend right to it because you will. You know, in my practice, I, I, can, I can tell you how many people, regardless of them, them making four or 500 grand a year, have nothing saved. That's crazy. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing, which, which answers the age old human question that it takes discipline to actually save for the future. And then your second point's good too. I think what companies' responsibilities are are to provide real educational opportunities for people to learn. And then I believe in a world of individual responsibility. So if you do your best to educate people and give them tools to handle their finances and they choose not to use it, what can you do? You can't do a whole lot. But if you're offering it, that's all you can do. Is say, look, I really want this to be best. It matters to you and me for your life to be successful in the future. This is wellness beyond just you being an employee of this company. Then you would offer those those either seminars or, or you know, hey, read these books or do these things. Uh, and then I think lastly, it's like kind of a big commentary. It's unfortunate that the reason people have to have 401ks nowadays, nowadays and don't have a firm like mine handling all the assets, let's say for your company, for your employees, and they don't have to make those decisions, comes down to excessive regulation and government action to where uh, we don't have pensions because they don't increase the retirement age, right? Social security is in trouble because we ridiculously have the retirement age still so low when people are living 15 years longer than they did. So you have these, these things pulling at each other where the best idea is to have professional fiduciary investors managing money for employees, but we can't do that because we're creating restrictions in the back end when people retire. So now what happens? Well, everyone's got individual responsibility, which is great, but can we expect every employee to figure out how to invest their money? No, so what do they do? They do what their boss does or their friend does. What most people do, Colin, is they leave all their money in cash. So they get this money in a 401k and it's in cash. It doesn't grow, it loses money due to inflation. They have nothing for retirement. One half of 50 year olds in this country have not a single dollar in a retirement account, one half. It's a big problem. So the best thing we can do, start small, start educating our employees, hope they educate others, right? And it's addition by multiplication with people learning. This is fascinating stuff. Yeah. Right? I'm, like, something? I'm like taking all these notes and well it's funny because you know I've just recently even been on this kick of you know like I did I did buy a house a long time ago you know I've owned it for years and I'm reading a lot of this stuff I'm listening to a, I listen to a lot of audiobooks in the car I'm just driving listening and I'm like damn that makes so much sense I'm like damn why did I buy that house <laughs> you know like and that's that's very much been my mindset even to the point where I've been like kind of nudging my, I'm like dude because I I've mean, said we, forever I want to buy a house, house and I'm like I'm like dude. I feel like I'm throwing money away in rent I, I look at the last 15 years that I've rented in Gainesville I'm like wow I could have equity in something which yeah. You're both telling me I'm an idiot now, so I, I appreciate that. But. We've done that all episode. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. But see, like, I mean, because I'm like learning these things, and and I'm like, 
just kind of pressing it on some of the people around me, like, ah, reconsider this, reconsider this. this is going against a lot of the stuff that I'm learning right now. I don't know if you want to do this. There might be better ways to manage your money. And I, I mean, I wish I would have known this stuff 10 years ago. In fact, I, like I even made, I don't like post a lot of stuff on Facebook in terms of like what I'm like reading and stuff, but I actually made a post saying, I can't believe that I did not discover that book 15 years ago. I wish I had. This is exactly what they need to be teaching in school. Like I just like laid it out. I'm like, these are the bullet points, these, you know, and I don't know. We just, we just need more financial education. And when it comes to that stuff, cause who knows what the world's going to look like in the future. No, you're right. And I think the key too, is we do live in a society that has access to more information than ever and take it upon yourself to read. Reading yeah. is the great shortcut in life and that's a real shortcut to actual success because you're taking what someone learned their entire life, getting it in 300 pages, and then you're learning that very quickly. Well, and, and, and that's amazing, but we don't, we don't want to do it. You know, I like to tell our interns, don't read articles, read books. If you have a question about something, don't start Googling the article. Go to who discovered that or who's written like the meta book on that and read about it because what you'll learn in six hours of reading will obliterate whatever three or four articles that you that you reference. And so I think that is is a key point. And I mean, there's a lot of influence from our parents and from the generations before us, right? I mean, you like if your dad would have said, no, don't start that firm, you might not have started that firm, right? Like, so there, there's a lot of influence. I mean, and when we look at the generations before us, there was, I mean, it was all about saving. It was a lot of, it was a lot of, you know, hey, be, have a secure job, have the benefits, like have, you know, I, I, I care for you, son, I want you to be safe, I want you to be secure, right? And and so like naturally that rubs off into the generations, and I don't know, I just like look at some of us who, you know, and, and my parents, my parents are super, super supportive of me and, and I'm very grateful for it, but there's a lot of people who are really going to do what their parents tell them. <laughs> yeah, and you that's know? unfortunate too. And that, yeah. again, I think you have to become an adult and own your own decisions in your own life. And, and the step one to becoming uh, a man or woman of wisdom is to, is to own where you are in life right now and say, whatever's happened to me in the past, I need to, you can't control life, it's not take control but I need to understand that I'm not a victim of whatever's happened to me because there's a future in front of me that I can make active choices to, to better myself. And oftentimes that starts with, with reading because reading is a way to get access to new information you didn't have before, which may be different than what your parents told you because they might be wrong or your brother or your cousin or your teacher or whatever. Uh, but if you continue to say, well, I didn't, I didn't get off with this start or I wasn't able to get to this point, so now my life is this, it's just not true. It denies what anyone in history has ever accomplished, which is often to say, bad stuff has happened to me. And, you know, life is full of pain and suffering. It's difficult. Um, you have to make, make a conscious choice to say, I want to learn. I want to do something different in the future. I don't want to just spend my whole life saying, I'm this person because life imprinted it upon me. That's a surefire way not to get anywhere. And uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think that you know, if you listen to successful people, regardless of where they came from, that's where they eventually got to, is I'm gonna make a conscious choice to, to learn and grow and get better, and I know things will be hard, yeah. but I'm not gonna blame my success or failure on someone else. I'm gonna do my best to, to handle the things I can handle. I mean, that's probably the most important investment is investing in yourself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you only so get do it. one trip here, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
All right, so let's talk a little bit about some Gator football. Because <laughs> Mike's excited. Mike's ready. I'm yeah, ready. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the season's right around the corner. I mean, I know we're recording J- July 17th. Season's right around the corner for from us today. And when this episode comes out, we're going to be we're gonna be right in it. It's going to be go time. Uh, podcast is doing really well. You got some. You got some loyal fans. I got. I mean, so, so tell us a little bit about the podcast. So the podcast started much like the firm started. My friend, my co-host Alan Williams, walked into my living room, and he says, "Hey, I I couldn't find a single Gator podcast worth listening to." And again, this is five plus years ago. So podcasting was out there, but it wasn't covering niche markets like Gator Sports really all that well. I think there might have been only three or four Gator podcasts. One of them had just started. He says, "What you just want? You want to start one?" I said. Sure, why not? Let's start one. I've never started a podcast. I have no idea. Fired up the Google machine. How do, what microphone <laughs> do we get? How do we do this? And yeah, it turns out it wasn't that difficult. Uh, it takes time. It wasn't that difficult. We started the podcast. And, and I told Alan, if 100 people listen to this, and that's the peak, it'll be great. It'll be great fun. What a fun little thing this will be. And we had 100 people very fast. And before we knew we had 1,000, and then we had 10,000. And it was ridiculous. Yeah. And it got to the point where actually... Uh, in year three, I said, hey, let's let's put a paywall behind this. Let's do something crazy. Because it takes a lot of time. Yeah. I want to know that people really care about this podcast because I love doing it, but I, I can't spend all this time on it and taking time away from other things if people don't really care. If it's like, meh, I'm listening to it because it's there, I'm not interested. And uh, that, that that's what we did. So we put a paywall behind it. People freaked out, but we actually had like 80 people that paid. So of course, that, that seems like a tiny number, but in podcasting, nobody charges for their podcast unless you're like a mega podcast, like, you know, Hardcore History or something with Dan Carlin. So we did that and I said, this is great. People like the podcast. Let's, let's, t- let's turn it off and make it free again, right? Which we did. And so, and so now we have this huge listener base and it's actually really crazy because I will be out places in Publix or somewhere else and I'll be in line and somebody behind me will say, you're the guy from the Gator Nation Football Podcast. They don't, they don't know what I look like. Yeah, they hear they my that. voice. Yeah. I listen oh, to they, you every single week. No, I know your oh, voice. No and way. it's like, get it's out off of the here. voice. They just hear you talking to somebody. It's amazing. And so I'm sure like what you get here, it's been really neat to tap into. I'm not an entertainer, but in a weird way, I guess I am. We have a large audience. We're by far the largest Gator football podcast that there is. Um, that's fun to say, but it's really neat to kind of like be in the entertainment field. You kind of feel what it's like to create something and then people like your creation. Or they don't like your creation. You get both sides of it, right? But it's been a ton of fun. And so what we started the podcast on was really like a couple of simple principles. We were going to be who we were. For Alan, he's like a personnel guy, likes to follow the team at kind of that level. And for me, I'm a strategist. I love strategy. And, and you can probably catch some of that from how we talked about things today. I love finding the right answer to these problems. And I love football. So I grew up a baseball and soccer player, but I always played football. Got to college, fell in love with flag football, played a lot of quarterback, and then started learning a lot about football theory in general. So the X's and O's of offense and defense and other stuff. And so that makes me a good analyst that doesn't really exist very much in the podcast world or the written medium world. And so I think what people are really drawn to in our podcast is we break down things like game theory uh, with regards to how coaching decisions are made, how strategies are undertaken. And then I also break down what you're going to see or how we're going to attack a team. So we've had a lot of success saying this week, we're going to run cover two or cover three and they're going to run this and here's what you're going to see and we'll break it down we'll explain it and so i think the greatest joy for me is to get people that will write and say i have learned so much about football from listening to your podcast like now i know what this is and i watch the game and i tell my friends what this is and to me that's so cool because originally people would have said you're crazy to talk about football theory in a podcast like don't don't give your listeners something educated just give them the typical dumbed down rah rah and i was just like i'm not interested in that 
I want to talk about the chess game I see on the field. And if it doesn't work, then fine. We'll flame out in a ball of glory. But it's been amazing to me how many people have taken to it. And it's so much fun to talk about because it's actually a great therapeutic way. We've had a lot of crazy stuff go down. I'll never forget walking into the studio just high as a kite. Will, Will Greer is tearing stuff up. We're so excited. We feel like the future is super bright. And I get a text message. You know, that my friend sends me. It's a screenshot of like this LSU message board that says, you know, bad news coming for Florida tomorrow, something about Will Greer. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, it's some LSU message board troll. And then I start getting more text messages. And then before you know, the news comes out. And we go in the studio and we're just like, we just can't have nice things. <laughs> you know, why can't we have nice things? And that became the story, as, as you know, right. as a Gator fan of the, of, the, of the whole five years of the podcast. Yeah. Like we can't have nice things. When something good is gonna happen, oh, something man. good doesn't happen. And so, you know, there, there's been a lot of a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and, and I can't believe the success of the podcast. Like just yesterday, uh, so I do have, you feel like you're getting a lot of insider information though? <laughs> like, yeah, let's see more people like texting yes. you and like hey, trying to keep you informed on what's going on. Yeah, and people think I have insider information, which I don't. My information comes <laughs> I would, from all I would, of I would the, totally well, think they, that. I get it because all the people that are fans of the show send it to me, and yeah, so yeah. they they think that I have something more, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know this. This is amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cool. Because there's no way to really know. Now I'll get some. I'll get some things. I mean, I know obviously I thought a director pretty well, and a couple of other people there. When I, I've coached this this summer, I coached a professional flag football team, so I coached like Michael Vick and Danny Warfel and some of these guys, Jason Avant. So there's inside stuff that you'll pick up, but the true reality is most of the insider stuff here is a bunch of made up garbage. Like, yeah, because when time goes by and you talk to the players about what actually happened, it's it's different than what you think it was. But I'll I'll give you a couple of, of good stories. Uh, during the the Tim Tebow era, there was a lot of talk about Percy Harvin, which of course now is well publicized. And at that time, I had a couple of friends on the team who kept telling me, James, you don't understand. Like, Percy Harvin does whatever he wants to do, like literally whatever he wants to do. He doesn't come to practice. He skips training camp. He just does. He's like a pro athlete. And Urban never punishes this guy. So that was the rumor for a long time. But, you know, no, no, we're winning. No, 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 it's not happening. And that, of course, wound up being really true. And and a lot of people think the treatment of Percy really is what started to split that team up. Because the team is running laps and suicides and getting driven really hard. And Percy would basically say things like, I'm not doing it, coach. I'm like, all right. And Percy would sit out and the whole team's running laps doing stuff like that. Now, I'm not dogging Percy. Percy lives in Gaines, was actually a really nice guy. I don't think it's his fault that he said that and the coaches didn't do anything about it. But it was very true that this this culture crumbled from within. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes you hear things that are true and not true, and, and sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. You know, you heard with McElwain for a long time that, like, and this is the most inside information we had. On the podcast, we had an absolute inside source to what was going on with Will Greer. And we were sharing it on the podcast and I was taking major heat. Oh, no. You're dogging the program. <laughs> Why would you talk about coach this way? And I'm like, look, I'm just presenting an alternative story. I think the story is this. I think the narrative is that McElwain wanted Will Greer out. And here's what I've heard. And there's the things I've heard. And here's what's gone on behind the scenes. And I think to our credit, we were really the only broadcast media source that did it, but we didn't do it like a media source would. We didn't send it into ESPN. We didn't try to make it news. And then Will Greer came out with his side of the story, which he's done twice now in a written medium, which is almost exactly the story that we told. Now, no one knows the full truth, but as time has gone on, I think it's become pretty clear who the villain was in that story. So that's fun. You get some inside stories. You yeah. hear some stuff like that. But most of the time, these I don't know what the message board people are doing or what they think they're seeing or watching or who they talk to, but it is the most conjured up like fairy tale stuff you can imagine. Uh, but probably a couple of my favorite parts are this time of year, 
every team's fan feels so good about what's happening in oh, camp. Oh, sure. Right? Oh, yeah. And one thing that frustrates a lot of our fans on my podcast is I'm always talking about it. I don't care. Don't don't give me a report about how well their spring was or how great their fall camp is. I don't care. And that makes people mad. Doesn't that matter? It doesn't matter to me. Because I think in life, practice players are not necessarily the best game players. Mm. And that's a hotly debated thing, right? The, 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 the kind of normal football culture now is you practice how you play. I refuse to believe that. That's the most nonsensical thing ever. Now, I'd love to hear the performing arts guys here behind me talk about this because I think that might be true or not. But I imagine there are some people that absolutely do not practice like they play. And Percy that Harvin be good. being one of them. <laughs> that, yeah, that could be good or that could be bad. And Percy's a great example. Percy didn't practice and he was the best player on the field. But I do think when the lights come on, it's different. The pressure's different. The atmosphere is different. You need to see what guys are like under that kind of environment. Uh, and so we talk about a lot of stuff like that in the podcast. You know, So we'll say, hey, do we think this coach is the guy that evaluates game film or is he a practice guy? Uh, and that's just, I think, is interesting in sports. I think it's interesting in life to kind of evaluate how people evaluate things and whether they're going to be successful. And of course, there's a reason why Nick Saban and Bill Belichick and Dabo Sweeney and those guys win. They almost always have a great culture. They have a great plan. And they're unafraid to make huge decisions. And last year, Dabo Sweeney benching Kelly Bryant to put in Trevor Lawrence was a massive managerial decision that won him a national championship. And it made him unpopular. And it probably risked splitting the locker room a little bit. But he did what's best for the team. And uh, I think that it's fun to talk about Gator sports and it's therapeutic when we lose to go on the air and just have a hot take as much <laughs> as it is fun to go have a great take when you watch something good. Um, so I've thoroughly enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And the success has been way more than I ever thought it would be, yeah, which has crazy. been amazing. And so it's been a ton of fun. And now here I am on your podcast and I feel like I'm like a somewhat professional podcaster. And, and again, yeah, this, this are, setup man. though, I just want to say this setup is ridiculous. <laughs> we joke that we have Studio B for the Gator Nation podcast. And <laughs> Studio B. Nobody's, <laughs> Welcome nobody's, to Studio B. Nobody's ever seen it. So we'll uh, rotate between Studio A, B, and C. It's a running joke between Alan and hilarious. I. And hopefully there's not too many crossover listeners here. I'm going to spoil the secret, but... <laughs> Studio B, A, or C was originally Alan's basement, or now it's the second floor of my office, and it's literally one table, two Yeti mics, and one laptop, and that's it. There's, that's there's no need, studio man. going on, but uh, but it's amazing you can do that today with podcasting technology, yeah. right? It's incredible. It allows us to go on and have the spoken word. That's cool, and then really it's, I think it's cool when hobbies kind of become you know, a revenue generator or something. You know, I I mean, this is definitely the highlight of my week. Like I love doing this, it's you so know. Fun. It's so much fun just to get on here and just just chat and talk and and then I haven't had the the people running into me in the grocery store yet. That'll hate. That'll <laughs> but happen. hey, man, it's like it's it's pretty cool. Actually, I've had one at one time. I had somebody go, "Hey, you're on that podcast, right?" <laughs> that but that was like like at a barbecue, my friend's barbecue, you know. But uh, you've got to be like a Gainesville celebrity at some level now with no. all the social a certain a certain demographic. Probably I'm still in you. Studio Z, <laughs> like Z, very, very bottom. <laughs> not, not this studio. Look, you got it. You got James over here as a camera that's moving. I know, man. Look it's, at that thing. It's epic. What is that thing even doing? Is it filming? It's, yeah, it's is filming. it taking still shots? Yeah, it's like it's totally getting. It's you, mesmerizing. I'm having a hard time focusing. I have to try to not look at. Like, I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> so well, this has been a lot of fun, man. That's thanks incredible. for thanks for coming on. I mean, so real quick, so uh, well, I gotta let the football guy talk football for a minute. Go ahead. Are you, do I get to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I just want to know. Okay, so we, we could. <laughs> We've talk, been really looking forward to this episode, and I feel like if I don't let him, get we're now into hour two of the World <laughs> GMV yeah, podcast. I mean, um, no, uh, the last the last four games last year, Felipe turned it up. Right, year two of Mullen's offense. 
what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I have uh, I have dogged Felipe hard for a long time. Um, and that's not because I don't like him. It's just based upon what you saw in film. I think a lot of credit goes to Mullen for improving his skill and his play. I think what we need to see happen now uh, for there to be actual growth and progress is Felipe's got to be able to make some reads down the field. And, you know, last year the system was very, very simple. It was very, very friendly. And towards the end of the year, we had favorable matchups mm-hmm. that worked out for us. In the spring game, if you went to the spring game, they scripted it so Felipe could look like a hero, right? They actually told him what defenses the defense was going to run, and they did not allow the defense to adjust. And then they ran a coverage beater, so they ran two guys against one defender, and they <laughs> obviously are going to win that matchup. Right. But the thing about Felipe that's intriguing is he, he has all the tools to become like a, a number one NFL draft pick, body-wise, right? Arm talent everything else I don't know if he has it between the years I don't mean he's not smart I mean on the football field and that's what this year needs to be he should take a huge step forward uh, being in the system now for year three of learning so to speak and I think for us to be an 11 win team this year Vegas has us at nine right our schedule is pretty favorable for us to win 11 and, and compete with Georgia or Alabama or Texas A&M I think Franks is going to have to be able to throw for more than 150 yards in games that matter and so far he has proven that he cannot do that mm-hmm. That has got to happen. We can't be winning with him you know, going 10 for 14 for 120 yards. That has got to stop happening. I think Mullen knows that, but that's going to be the grand experiment because Dan Mullen himself doesn't throw the ball very often, does not throw it downfield. So the two things I'm looking for this year, do we start to take a more vertical approach like Urban Meyer did? Urban Meyer grew out of that kind of three-yard offense into a vertical offense. Does Dan Mullen take that step? And does Franks take that step with him? And if we don't take that step, I think we're going to win a lot of games because I think our schedule is favorable. But I don't think we can beat you know, the top dogs without kind of taking that, that progression and that step. I think it's interesting to have to rely on the passing game this year more so than the years past. I mean, for one, from a wide receiver standpoint, it's the deepest wide receiver like group we've had in, in forever. But the running game, I feel like, has gotten a little weaker. I mean, P. Ryan's great. Pierce, we'll see. But losing Scarlett, who was, who was a good ball carrier... Um, and the O-line's gotten weaker. And and I think about all the the criticism that Frank's got, I think about Driscoll as the same guy where I think your clock gets messed up when you're used to laying on your back most of the time. And, and I don't think the offensive line this year is going to be quite as bad as what Driscoll had to deal with, but there were some really good stalwarts that, that have defected now, and it's going to be interesting to see those two areas and do weaknesses there translate to a focus on the on the passing game or not. Yeah, I think you highlighted the major question for the season, which is the offensive line. I think from the running back standpoint, you're going to get the best pass protection we've seen in a long time. One of the reasons why we got asked this question all the time is like, why is Jordan Scarlett in there so much over person X, Y, Z? And why is so-and-so in there? A lot of times it's because of pass protection. And it's hard for running backs to learn college pass protection. This year we should be good from the running backs, but the offensive line is... Hevesy's got a great record of doing good things with with guys you have no idea are capable of doing anything good. But when you lose four offensive linemen in the SEC, that is typically not a recipe for success. And the fact that Vegas knows that and has us in nine wins, again, shows we have a very favorable schedule. But you're right. And to me, that's where the quarterback makes all the difference, is if you understand the system, you can get the ball out quickly, uh, then that can help. But you're not wrong to say that if you're on your back, it messes you up. And David Carr famously is a guy in the NFL that most analysts think that he played for a different team and not taken more hits than any quarterback ever took in the first you know, six, seven years of his career. He might have been a Hall of Fame guy. 
he was fantastic and it ruined him it broke him he could never play quarterback again so franks is is not there yet obviously he's had some okay protection in time but but you're right he hasn't had a normal pocket um and when he has he's done some good things at certain points in time so i think that there's this is going to be a good season to watch unfold and then gator basketball is going to be maybe even better um, oh, you know, when it comes to yeah. watching how good Mike White is as a coach, because he's got all the tools. But it should be a really awesome year as a Gator sports fan. Football's not going to tell us everything. I think it's important as a Gator fan this year to recognize we're still in the heavy transition year. This is not the loaded deck year, but it should tell us a little bit about uh, something Dan Mullen's proven to me already, which is that he's a phenomenal developer of talent, and and he's maybe maybe one of the best, if not the top two or three in all of college football, at developing talent. Uh, he's extremely good at it. And that's important because we're still not recruiting as well as we need to be, mm-hmm. which is a whole other topic for a whole different day. But right. I'm excited to see what's going to happen. It's nice to be excited because for the last not, how many years, it was like, eh, fo- football season's coming. <laughs> it, was, it was painful. <laughs> it hurt. Yeah, it was it's sad real bad. And, you guys, and disgusting. This is what I love about this podcast. We can really <laughs> we do, do whatever, whatever we want. We can talk finance, business, and then football all in the same podcast. And stories that wrap them all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously though. Oh, uh, we do gotta wrap up. Where can everybody find all your stuff, your business? You know, I know you said the website earlier. Yeah, you can you can find me in two ways. The 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 football podcast, the Gator Nation football podcast. If you just Google that it'll pop right up and you can reach us anywhere through that medium, Twitter, Patreon email, um, Facebook. And then the firm, the best place is the website, which is cddwealth.com. If you try to Google me at all, even typing in my last name and the worst spelling you've ever seen, James D. Virgilio, I assure you I'll be the first person that pops up. There's not too many. And then my website pops up right there too. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for being here. This is fun. That yeah, was it, was, it was a lot of fun. I know. And earlier you said, oh, you know, I got these guys behind me from UF Performing Arts. Brandon, you, you wanna come over here on the mic real quick and give give a little shout out? <laughs> you guys, we have a couple guests, and so, and so we try to make this happen as, as often as we can. We have a lot of people who are interested in our, in our podcast and, and what we're doing. I don't know, like you're gonna be able to get them on camera. I gotta make James shift a little bit. Um, but let me uh, unmute that mic real quick. But yeah, so you know, just uh, tell us tell us a little bit about the the podcast, or because you're you, these guys are here, kind of observing, coming to learn from us on podcasting, something that I know don't know anything about. <laughs> I openly admit that I'm like, yeah, I'm still figuring this out on my own. How, how to I'm, fake I'm, a podcast? I'm, how to fake a podcast? I'm, I'm happy to show you how how we do things and mess things up a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, like give your give your podcast a little plug. Yeah, for what's, sure. What's coming. So, uh, so yeah, watch, watch that light right there behind you. Don't there you go. Is it gonna yeah, take yeah, me out? Good, <laughs> or I'm gonna take it out? One of the two. Yeah. So we're uh, we're here checking everything out that you guys are doing. Um, we're in the middle of creating a podcast for you at Performing Arts. Uh, podcast will be called Stages, and uh, we'll kind of focus on the performers that are coming through interviews and uh, their stories, past, present, future. Cool. Um, as well as everything else that's going on with the organization. Awesome. So. Well, Brandon, Sam, thanks for thanks for coming in and sitting in on us. No, thanks. Ho- for hopefully, you us. learned something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure. And uh, you. And any last words? Nope. Anything okay. else? That's good. All right. Hey guys, everybody, thank you so much. Until next time, this is the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go whoa. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you later. Bye.